and the Chairman, my dear brethren and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. After his discourse with Nicodemus, we learn in verse 22 of John chapter 3 that the Lord left the city of Jerusalem and travelled out into the land of Judea. As we trace the Lord's footsteps as he came from Cana of Galilee and Capernaum down to Jerusalem, we see he firstly went to the temple. The first recorded events in Jerusalem took place in the temple where he cleansed the temple. Then at the end of chapter 2 we read of him spending the rest of the Passover feast in the city of Jerusalem, preaching and performing miracles there. Now we see him moving out of Jerusalem into the country regions of Judea. And so as it were from the centre of the temple he is now radiating out and extending his work through the land. And so there we read in verse 22 that after these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea and there he tarried with them and baptised. We read that he tarried in the land of Judea there. He spent time there. He didn't hurry or rush his work in those regions. How long he stayed there we don't know. We're not told. We're merely told that he spent time there and we do learn that his work in those regions did bear fruit. Because in verse 26, at the end of that verse we read, the same baptizes, referring to Christ, and all men come under him. So there were greater crowds coming to the Lord Jesus Christ at this time than there were going to John the Baptist. And so the Lord's work was meeting with some success. And so he did not hurry through those regions but spent time there with his disciples preaching the gospel and, as we read there, baptising. But we learn that the Lord himself did not baptise. Because in chapter 4 and verse 2 we read, Though Jesus himself baptised not, but his disciples. And so it wasn't the Lord Jesus baptising himself, but he was allowing his, bapti- his disciples to baptise those who came under them seeking to be baptised. That baptism to which they were baptised in, into would be the same as the baptism of John. It would not have been a baptism into the death of the Lord Jesus Christ because at that time he hadn't died. Not only had he not died, but his disciples did not understand at that stage that he was going to die. And so there's little doubt that they would not have been baptising the people into the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that baptism, like John's baptism, would have been a token of their repentance and their desire to start a new life in dedication to God in readiness to accept the saving work of the Messiah when his sacrifice was completed. And so that baptism was not a baptism in opposition to John's work. It was really an endorsement of John's work and a continuation of it. And we learn from verse uh, 23 that while the Lord Jesus Christ's disciples were baptising in this manner, John himself was also baptising. So the two, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, are working simultaneously together in different parts of the land, probably not very far distant, but at different parts. Because we learn there in verse 23 that John also was baptising in Anon near to Salem. Because there was much water there, and they came and were baptised. And so we find John, even though he had now announced to the nation that the Messiah was in their midst, even though he knew his work had come to its climax, we see him still faithfully continuing on with that work, endeavouring to prepare people's minds to accept their Messiah. We find that he has changed his location. When we go back to uh, John chapter 1 and verse 28, 
we read that, that prior to the baptism of the Lord and at the time of the Lord's baptism, John was baptising at Bethabara. These things were done in Bethabara beyond Jordan where John was baptising. When we considered that verse we saw that John was down in the regions of the Jordan just north of the Dead Sea at the very place where Joshua had led the children of Israel through the Jordan into the land of promise. And, that, and we learned that that Bethabara was on the other side of the Jordan. So that as the people went out to John, they had to cross over the Jordan, they had to go over to the other side of the Jordan, uh, they had to uh, listen to John's preaching, and then they had to turn around and go through the Jordan again back into the land. Typically, as it were, making a completely new start, leaving all the past behind them and making a new start. Now we find, however, John having baptised the Lord and announced him to the nation, we find that he has changed his location. We're not particularly told the reasons why. Perhaps there had been a dry season and the, 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 the waters of the Jordan ran low. We don't know. We are told there in verse 23 of chapter 3 that at a new site he chose Anon near to Salem because there was much water there. So the, the abundance of water made it an ideal place for John to continue his work of baptising the people. Now the exact site of Anon near to Salem is not really known today. People seem a little divided as to, as to where it actually is. Some suggest a place in which there are seven springs of water. It may be the place. But we don't really know where it was. But, but when we look at the name Anon, it, the name Anon means springs of water. And so it does suggest that it was a place where there were springs of water. And it was in the water coming forth from those springs that John baptised the people. And we're told that those, that those springs of water were near to Salem. Now some authorities state that Salem is the Greek form of the Hebrew word Salem a word which means peace. And so here was John baptising the people in the springs of water that were close to peace. And here he is of course trying to prepare the people to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is to be the Prince of Peace, the one who is described in Genesis chapter 49 as the Shiloh, the bringer of peace or tranquillity. And so John is continuing his work of endeavouring to prepare the people to accept he who is to be the Prince of Peace, the one who can bring them into a state of peace with God. Now verse 24 makes the simple statement that John was not yet cast into prison. Now this shows us quite clearly that the events that we're reading of here in John chapter 3 precede the events, the next events recorded by Matthew, Mark and Luke. Because Matthew, Mark and Luke each, um, if we go to the, uh, to, the, to the book of Mark, Matthew I don't think particularly mentions it, but in the book of Mark and the book of Luke we find that, that um, after the Lord is baptised we uh, we read in verse 14 that after his temptation in the wilderness, now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And we find that it is the other gospel writers other than John that take up the ministry of the Lord after his temptation at that point where the Lord, after John is put into prison, enters into his great Galilean ministry which is recorded for us in those gospel records. And so we learn from that statement in John chapter 3 that these events of which we are reading precede those events mentioned next by the other gospel writers. And as, as the Lord ministered in Judea, John was simultaneously continuing his ministry there in the land baptising people, endeavouring to prepare their minds to receive the Messiah who was now in their midst. Now in verse 25 we read, Then there arose a question 
between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. If you check the Diaglot and the Revised Standard Version and, and others, you will find that, that instead of reading um, a, a questioning between some of John's disciples and the Jews, it was between some of John's disciples and a Jew. It only mentions one particular person. And so there's John baptising his disciples uh, around him, assisting him in that work, when along comes a Jew and starts asking certain questions, starts questioning John's disciples about purifying. And that word purifying is the word katharismos. It's used seven times in the New Testament. It's used in, uh, in several places referring to the ceremonial cleansings of the law. We find it in, uh, in Mark 1.44, Luke 2.22, uh, Luke 5.14, John 2 verse 6, used in that way, referring to the ceremonial cleansings of the law. In Hebrews 1.3 the word is used of Christ purging our sins and then sitting down on the right hand of the Father. In 2 Peter 1 and verse 9 it's used again of, um, of the, the cleansing of our sins. It's used in a way that shows it applies to the baptism to which believers have submitted. Second uh, of Peter 1 verse 9 we read, But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. As he was purged from his old sins when he was baptised into Christ. And there the subject of baptism was the, was the purifying or the purging medium. Now I think there's little doubt whatever when we look at the circumstances here that the, the question in dispute was baptism. And this Jew had come along and started questioning John's disciples about baptism. And we find that uh, out of this discussion that took place certain things emerged. Point number one as we will see from the next verse that John's disciples were made aware that Christ's disciples were baptising. We find that the disciples also learned that Christ's popularity was now exceeding John's. And we find from chapter 4 and verse 1 that as a result of it all, Christ also became aware that the Pharisees knew that Jesus was baptising and making more disciples than John. And so when we put all these facts together, it seems quite apparent really that, that, that a drama was beginning to develop in the land. You see, Christ had been up to Jerusalem He'd cleansed the temple. He'd stirred up the enmity of the priesthood. You see, he'd, 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 um, in Jerusalem he performed many, many miracles. And he, 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 he gathered certain disciples. And we find that the implications are now that the Pharisees are watching his every move. They're watching everything that he's doing. They've watched him going out into the land of Judea and they've seen him baptising. Straight away, a representative is sent to John to question John. Well, are there two baptisms? What's the meaning of this, that you're baptising and there's another fellow up here, he's baptising. Are there two baptisms? What's the meaning of all this? And possibly they're trying to, to uh, set John against Christ and so on and so forth. And in fact, it seems that they almost succeeded in that as far as some of John's disciples were concerned. I believe it's a little indication of the developing drama that was taking place in that land as the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent was building up to its ultimate climax. But we find as we look at the circumstances here that rather than destroy the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, rather than undermine the work of John, Yahweh used those circumstances to further the Lord's work 
and to place on record for us a very beautiful discussion that took place between John and his disciples. And so in verse 25 we believe that a Jew has come along to John's disciples. He's pointed out to them that the Lord is baptising, that the Lord is getting more followers than John is and so on and so forth. And John's disciples are put into a bit of a quandary over this. You know, you see, Andrew, Peter and John, John the Apostle that is, not John the Baptist, had all been disciples of John, but they had readily accepted the Lord Jesus Christ when he came. It seems that there were still many disciples that were rigidly loyal to John. You see, perhaps some of them had just joined John because he seemed to be the leader of a popular movement at that time. But now you see that popularity was beginning to wane. And we find that those disciples were a little dismayed at John's declining popularity. And in verse 26 we see that they come to John and they say unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, Behold, the same baptizes, and all men come to him. We find that in the latter part of that verse, it is suggested by some authorities, there is almost a note of contempt in the words used there, where it says, Behold, the same baptizes. It is suggested that the, the, the implication of those words is, Behold, this fellow baptizes, and all men come unto him. And we see that, that, that John's disciples here are being moved with, with, with a little bit of indignation as they come to John and point out these things. But the disciples were obviously upset by what they had heard and felt that by the Lord baptising, he was treading on their master's sacred ground. They seemed to think that baptism was exclusive to John. And now that the Lord had come along and was baptising, they thought that he was treading on John's sacred ground. They saw him as trying to usurp John's position. When they heard that he was attracting more people than John was receiving, they felt that John must do something to assert his position and regain his popularity. And that seems to be the the, uh, motive that is behind their coming to John in verse 26. And out of that set of circumstances we find that that, uh, a a, a very beautiful discourse um, comes forth from John. And John's answer runs from verse 27 through to verse 36. In verses 27 to verse 31 verse 30 rather John explains to his disciples his own attitude and his own position. And in in verses 31 to 36, John appeals to those disciples to themselves turn from him and unite themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way that John's answer is broken up there. And those verses, verses 27 to 36, are the final recorded words we have of John the Baptist, that is with the exception of the question that he sent to the Lord out of of his prison cell just prior to his death. But apart from that one brief little question which was again doubtless an attempt to direct his disciples to the Lord Jesus Christ, with the exception of that little statement, these are the last recorded words we have of John. You see, and John's work now was very close to its end. It's only a very short time from here on and John is to be cast into prison. And the last little work that John had to perform was to direct the last of his disciples to the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah of Israel. And here in this passage we have John endeavouring to accomplish that thing. Now then, the disciples then in verse 26 have come to John. They've suggested to him that the Lord is usurping his position. 
They're calling upon him to do something about it. But you see, in verse 27 we read, And John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You know, and that verse really gives us the key to John's life. It gives us a key to the true greatness of that man. He was a servant of Yahweh and he was prepared to faithfully and patiently serve God regardless of whether he was getting increase or decrease. He, 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 he accepted all, whether it was increase or decrease, he accepted it all as being from God. You know, it describes really a very beautiful disposition. It reminds us of that disposition that we see in the man Job. We go back to, the, uh, to Job and we see the terrible trials that were brought upon that man. From a position of prosperity and wealth, he was suddenly plunged into a position of abject poverty as all his possessions were, were just stripped off him. And in chapter 2 of the book of Job, verse uh, 21, that must be a, a, a wrong quote because uh, there doesn't seem to be a verse 21 in Job chapter 2. Um, anyway, we, we, know the, uh, we know the story. We know that, that, that Job... Um, it may be chapter 1 verse 21 yeah it's chapter 1 verse 21 verse 20 and Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said naked came I out of my mother's womb naked shall I return thither Yahweh gave and Yahweh hath taken away blessed be the name of Yahweh and what a remarkable disposition that is it's very easy for us to worship and bless Yahweh when Yahweh is giving, when we're on the increase, when we're on the way up. But when everything is being taken away and when we're on the way down and we're being robbed of everything that we have, it's not so easy to worship and say, Blessed be Yahweh, Yahweh has taken away. But you see, just as Job had that, that attitude, so John also manifested the same attitude. He realised that the increase that the Lord was gaining was given to him by Yahweh. He realised that that which was being taken away from him at that time was being taken away by Yahweh. And John fully understood the purpose of Yahweh both with himself and with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the first of Corinthians in chapter 4 we find the Apostle Paul teaching the same principle here. <coughs> chapter 4 and verse 7 he says For who maketh thee to differ from another? What hast thou that thou hast not received? Now if thou didst receive it why dost thou glory as if thou had not received it? And so the Apostle Paul shows that everything that we receive, we receive from Yahweh. Anything that we have over and above what anybody else has got is not because of, of, of any ability or credit on our own part. It's because Yahweh has given it and made it so. And so there's no ground, the Apostle says, for one to glory because he's, he's got a little bit more or in a bit better position. There's no reason for another to, to uh, despair because he hasn't got those things because it is Yahweh that gives to each and every one according as he knows best for those particular circumstances and that was a disposition that, was, that John had a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven and so John was prepared to accept everything good or bad as being given him from heaven and being for his ultimate good and for, the, for his ultimate salvation. And so that's the disposition we find in John. But I can't help but feel that as we look at this little discourse that took place between John and his disciples, I can't help but feel that John had a particular 
incident in Israel's history in mind. Because I believe there's two or three inferences back to that, that incident in Israel's history. An incident that took place in the wilderness. And we read of it back in Numbers chapter 16. Back in Numbers chapter 16, we no doubt know the story well. It's the story of Korah, Dathan and Abiram. And here were three princes in Israel. Three people to whom Yahweh had given positions of honour in Israel. And yet, they weren't content with those positions, but they coveted over the positions that Yahweh had given to Moses and to Aaron. In, um, in Numbers chapter 16 and verses 9 to 11 we read Moses, Yahweh's words through Moses to these princes. Verse 8, And Moses said unto Korah, Hear I pray you, ye sons of Levi, seemeth it a small thing unto you that the God of Israel hath separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do the service of the tabernacle of Yahweh and to stand before the congregation to minister unto him. And he hath brought thee near to him and all thy brethren, the sons of Levi with thee, (coughs) and seek ye the priesthood also. And so we see that here were men who had been given honourable positions in Israel. But it seemed a small thing to them the position that Yahweh had given unto them and they covered it over the position that Moses and Aaron had. We go over to chapter 17 and verse 5 and we here we we read of the time when the rods were laid up before Yahweh and verse 5 and it shall come to pass that the man's rod whom I shall choose shall blossom and I will make the cease from me the murmurings of the children of Israel whereby they murmur against you. You see it's a very parallel set of circumstances really to the attitude of mind that was beginning to develop in John's disciples at that time. There were these princes in Israel envious over the position that Moses and Aaron had. Envious because Moses and Aaron had positions of prominence and popularity with the people. And they were moved with that envy and a tragedy befell Israel. And there were John's disciples. And there John, as he, as he listened to the disciples' questions, he could see the seeds in their mind that would develop into a light set of circumstances. And so you see, he says, whatever a person has, uh, they receive from heaven just as Korah, Dayton and Abiram should have realised that the positions of honour that they had had been given to them from heaven and had they only been content with those positions and gloried in the things that God had given unto them at that time. A tremendous tragedy could have been saved in Israel. And so it's as if John is quietly pointing out to his disciples here, look, we've been given a position by God or or, or I've been given a position from God and I'm going to accept that position I'm going to humbly and patiently continue the work that God has given me and I'm going to be subservient to the the Lord Jesus Christ who is gaining greater popularity uh, in his work and so in verse 27 I believe that that really is the message that John is giving to his disciples. In verse 28, he appeals to them to the very witness that they themselves had said of it about him. He says, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. You see in verse 26, when they come to him, they say, Um, he that was with thee beyond Jordan to whom thou bearest witness see they themselves had acknowledged that that John had witnessed that that, that the Lord was the Messiah John had made it quite clear that he was not the Messiah when we go back to John chapter 1 we find that John emphasises this through that chapter verse 15 John bare witness of him and cried saying 
This was he of whom I speak. Spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Verse 20. He confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as says the prophet Isaiah. Um, And going down to verse 27. He it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latchet I am not worthy to unloose. And so, right through these verses, John emphasises the fact that he is not the Christ, that he was sent as a forerunner to come before the Christ, and that the the, the Christ would come after him. So John clearly establishes that point in their minds. He said, right from the very beginning, I have told you that I am not the Christ, but I am sent to prepare the way for the Christ. The word sent there is the Greek word apostello. It's the verb of the noun apostle, one sent. And John was one sent to accomplish a particular work, to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. And so the Lord... (coughs) clearly emphasises that to his disciples. Now in verse 29 he says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom which standeth and heareth him rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And John introduces here a little parable. But it's a very, very expressive parable. It's a parable, of course, that runs from cover to cover of the Bible. We know only too well that the bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ. That the bride is the ecclesia. In the parable, the bridegroom is Christ, the bride is the ecclesia. But now in Judea, uh, Edda Schein, uh, in his book um, uh, Sketches of Jewish Social Life in the Days of Christ, he points out that in Judea the customs of, of, uh, of marriage, in the customs of marriage the friend of the bridegroom uh, played a very important part. The friend of the bridegroom or the groomsman or best man as we call him today had far greater and more responsible duties than he does in in the customs of the day today. It was the duty of the friend of the bridegroom to to, uh, seek the bride's uh, hand in marriage for the bridegroom. It was his duty to prepare her heart, to arrange the betrothal, to arrange the marriage, to act as intermediary between the two in, in, in all that period of time. Uh, And so the friend of the bridegroom in those days would act on behalf of the bridegroom. He would seek the bride, he would prepare her, he would arrange the marriage and so on and so forth and finally he would present her to the bridegroom at the time of the marriage. It's a very graphic figure of the work that John was performing in preparing, making ready a people prepared for the Lord. It's a parallel with the work of the Apostle. As the Apostle Paul saw his work in the same light in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And at uh, verse 2 he says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And so he sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom, going forth to prepare a bride for the Lord Jesus Christ. He's arranged a betrothal, and he's preparing that bride that he might ultimately present her to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was the work that John was performing in Israel at that time. He was the friend of the bridegroom. Now, of course, when the day of the marriage came, the bridegroom rejoiced 
because he received the bride. But the friend of the bridegroom rejoiced because he saw his work brought to a successful and a happy conclusion. And seeing his work bearing fruit in, in, in the happy union between the bride and the bridegroom, he rejoiced because he saw that his labour was not in vain. Now you see, here's John the Baptist baptising, but it comes to his he's brought to his attention that the Lord Jesus Christ is baptising also, and that the Lord Jesus Christ is, 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 uh, is gaining more popularity, he's getting more followers than John at that time. And was John going to be dismayed over that? The whole of John's life and work had been given to prepare a people to receive the Lord when he came. And now he hears the Lord there and he he hears news that he is gaining greater popularity than John had at that time. Of course John wouldn't be dismayed over that. He saw that as the fruits of his labours. He saw his labours being brought to a a happy and successful conclusion. And so as John points out there, he says, this my joy therefore is fulfilled. And so while the disciples were dismayed uh, and, and a little bit put out over what they heard, John himself rejoiced greatly because of that news as he heard that there were people in that nation who had been prepared to accept the Lord Jesus Christ and to identify themselves with him. And so we see the different attitude between John here and his disciples at this time. And John is trying to explain to the disciples that he was not dismayed, but he was, he was rejoicing greatly by the very things that he heard. And then in verse 30, in, in explaining his own position, he brings his argument to its conclusion. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John, we find a comparison set forth, or it runs right through these chapters really. We find a great comparison set forth between the Lord Jesus Christ and between John. The Lord Jesus Christ is set before us as the true light, but John is set before us as a hand lamp which was a witness to that light. John chapter 5 verse verse 35 the Lord here is speaking of John the Baptist he was a burning and a shining light and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light but I have a greater witness than that of John for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do, and they bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And here's John set forth as a burning and a shining light, or a hand lamp, that a person might light up, a person that gets up early in the morning before the sun is up. They'll light up a little hand lamp to give them light. And in those hours of darkness, that, that little light will shine brightly, and that, that, that light will shine brightly and gain the attention of, of, the, of the people. But as the sun comes up and shines forth and, and darkness flees before it, that little hand may be just swallowed up in the flood of light from the true light. And that's the figure that John is using. You see, he must increase, I must decrease. The time was come for that little hand lamp to be extinguished while the full blaze of the sun should flood that nation with light if only they would receive that light. The figure can be seen in the the relation of the morning star to the sun. In the early hours of the morning, the morning star will rise shining brightly in the sky. But when the sun arises and fills the earth with light, the morning star can be no longer seen. It's swallowed up. In the, in, the, in the manifestation of the light of the sun. And thus it was to be with John and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in, the, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 76, we find the, the uh, uh, comparison between John and the Lord Jesus Christ is set before us as the forerunner who goes before the king. Luke 1 verse 76, And thou, child, shall be called a prophet of the highest. 
for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. It's the figure of the forerunner who runs before the king. And as if a king was going to come into into this city at this time, the forerunner would come proclaiming and announcing the coming of that king. And while only the forerunner is there, he's the centre of attraction. But when the king comes himself, the forerunner disappears into insignificance because of the the glory of the personage of the king. These are doubtless the things that John has in mind as he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. John understood his position. He understood the work for which he had been sent and he accepted that position. He realised that whilst he had been riding, as it were, the crest of a wave, as his voice echoed throughout the length and breadth of that land and people from all corners of that land were flocking to him while he was riding the crest of the wave. Now the time had come when he must slip down the back of that wave and another must take that position. Sometimes it's hard to accept when those things come upon people. But John was well able to receive that position because he fully understood the position that he had been given by the God of heaven. Now in verses, having in down to verse 30 explained his own attitude and his own position towards these things, he now I believe in verses 31 to 36 endeavours to show his disciples that they too must leave him and unite themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in verse 31 he says, He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. In chapter 1 and verse 34, the Lord had, uh, John the Baptist had said concerning the Lord Jesus Christ he says I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God he that cometh from above is the Lord Jesus Christ he was begotten from above in a literal sense he was begotten from above in a moral sense he is the one who is from above. He is the seed of the woman, the son of God, the one that God was to provide from the human race to provide a saviour for mankind. And so when John says, he that cometh from above, I believe he's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, he that cometh from above is above all. A statement that we find uh, referred to in many places, I believe, of Scripture. But initially, I believe that statement takes us back to the book of Genesis. It takes us back to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. And in Genesis, chapter 1, and in uh, verses 26 and 28, we read, Nelohim said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, so on and so forth. Verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. You know, we go back to that set of circumstances. If Adam and Eve had had not sinned and done everything right, you know, Adam would have been above all. Adam would have had dominion over all the lower creation. He'd have had dominion over his wife because his wife was made out of him and given him to be a help for him. You see, and all any children that may have been produced. He would have been over them because they would have been his sons and therefore subject unto him. 
And so, had everything gone perfectly, Adam would have been the one who was above all, as far as this creation is concerned. But of course, everything didn't go right. Both Adam failed to have dominion over his wife. They failed to have dominion over the beasts of the field. They failed to have dominion over their own nature and so on and so forth. So they fell from that position. But God promised Eve in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to provide from her a son. A son who would gain dominion over sin. And thus a son who would ultimately have dominion over all because he is the beginning of a new creation so that when the kingdom of God is finally established everything will owe its existence to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will be above all. Christ is the second Adam. It's in uh, Romans chapter 9 and verse 5 we have this statement again used that Christ is above all Romans 9 and verse 5 whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all God blessed forever Amen so you see it is Christ who is above all he's the second Adam he's going to step into that position of being over all the creation In Ephesians chapter 1 we find reference made again to this fact. (coughs) Ephesians chapter 1 verses 21 to 23 speaking of uh, how Christ in verse 20 was raised from the dead he's been set at God's own right hand in heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all to the ecclesia, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And so you see, the Lord Jesus Christ has been elevated to a position of power and prominence in which he is over all. He's the head over all. And the ecclesia is his body, which must be subject to that head. And so you see, when John says that the he that cometh from above is over all, He's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ because the position over all is a position that is reserved for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as being over all, everything is subject to him. He is the head, the ecclesia is the body. So, right, in verse 31 then, the Lord say, uh, John says to his disciples, look, the Lord Jesus Christ He is appointed to that position of being above all. Now he says, He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. You know, in in James chapter 3, the Apostle James speaks in verse 14, chapter 3. He says, But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts glory not and lie not against the truth this wisdom descendeth not from above but is earthly sensual devilish here were John's disciples envying the Lord Jesus Christ and the popularity that he had gained here is strife in their hearts against the work that the Lord is accomplishing is his hour of the earth, earthly. And the things that they were speaking were of the earth. You know, it takes our minds back once more to Korah, Dathan and Abiram. Because they were of the earth also. The very words that they spoke were of the earth. And therein was that the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up. There they were swallowed up by the earth 
the very thing that was the origin of all their reasoning and of all their thoughts and of all their strife and of all their envy. And here were those seeds being manifested in John's disciples at that time. And he's warning them that they were of the earth, earthy. But he that was cometh from above the Lord Jesus Christ is destined for that position of being above all. And as being above all, then all must submit to him. None can be part of his body unless they submit to him, lest they also are begotten from above and that earthly things are laid aside. You see, when the Lord Jesus Christ is given that position of being above all, that position of dominion over the earth, then his bride, the ecclesia, will be united with him. They will have a position above all also then. Seeing then that they are being prepared for a position above all, where then is the place now for petty strifes and jealousies? What if we haven't got the position we'd like to hold now? What if we feel we, what if we feel we are being deprived of things now? So what? If we're begotten from above, if we're subject to the Lord Jesus Christ, the day will come when we together with him will be above all things of this creation. And the whole world will be, be subject to us. And so we can see the way in which John is reasoning with his disciples. He's trying to purge them of this, this, this attitude that was developing in their minds. And he's trying to show them that they must be subject to the Lord Jesus Christ if they are to have any hope at all. Now in verse 32, having stated that he that cometh from above is above all, he says, And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. The Lord, of course, in his preaching, was testifying of spiritual or heavenly things. And that was something that the natural man, unregenerated by the word, cannot receive. You see, in verse 3 of this chapter he had said to Nicodemus, Except a man be begotten from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He will never be able to perceive or to understand the things of the kingdom of God because they're things that are spiritually discerned. They're not discerned by the natural man. They can't be reasoned out on natural principles. And thus it is with, with, um, with spiritual things. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14 states this. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness under him neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned but he that is spiritual judges all things yet he himself is judged of no man you see in the natural man the man uh, the natural man cannot receive the things of the spirit of God because the spirit of God and the thinking of the flesh are at enmity one with the other they're at enmity one with the other and therefore, they, the natural man, the natural thinking, the thinking of the flesh, cannot receive the things of, of cannot receive heavenly things, as as, uh, as John says there at the end of that verse thirty-two. No man receiveth his testimony when he when, when he that cometh from above testifies of heavenly things that he has perceived from the word of God. It doesn't mean that the Lord Jesus Christ had ever been to heaven before and was talking of the things that he saw and heard there. We know that that is not true. But he was speaking of the things that he perceived and understood from the revelation that God had given under him. And the natural man cannot receive that testimony. However, he goes on in verse, um, verse 33... 
He says, he that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. Now it seems to, to uh, be a, a, a contrast there. No man receiveth his testimony in verse 32, but he that does receive it has set to this his seal that God is true. What does he mean? Well I believe there he's speaking of the way in which a man must be begotten from above. When the word of truth enters into a person's mind and changes his thinking and changes his disposition, then that person is in a position to perceive spiritual things. But the unregenerate man cannot receive those things. And so the Lord Jesus Christ was was rejected by his people because they could not receive the things that he taught. But we read in in chapter 1, of John and verse 12 we read that there were ones that did but as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on his name and that's the difference that what makes the difference to a person not being able to receive the testimony and a person being able to receive that testimony that one believes on his name and he that receives his testimony hath set to his seal that God is true in other words he's given his endorsement or confirmation to the fact that God is true you see he who receives the son receives the father because the father was working through the son Verse 34 he says For he whom God sent hath sent speaketh the words of God for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him Words unto him you will notice are in italics they're not in the original but nevertheless I believe the context does demand that those words are spoken of the Lord Jesus Christ It is the Lord Jesus Christ that is the subject of these verses. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. I believe that John is trying to direct his disciples to the Lord Jesus Christ because he says, God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Now, in the past, God had spoken through the prophets. God had spoken through John the Baptist. But there was something different about the way he spoke through them and the way he was revealing himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 we read God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. Now in that that verse should read if you were if you compare it with the, uh, the diaglot, the diaglot renders that um, God who in many parts and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. It's not saying sundry times at all. It's saying in many parts. And he spoke in many parts and in various ways by the prophets. You see, and when we look at the Bible, we've got the word, writings of all the various prophets, but there's the revelation of God in many parts. So you can't take the prophecy of Zephaniah, for example, uh, and exclude all the rest. You've only got a little part of God's revelation there. You, you, you take one of the books of Moses and dispense with the rest. <coughs> you can't do that because we've only got one little part of God's revelation. And so God spoke in many parts and in various ways unto the fathers by the prophets. But he says in verse 2 He hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom, by whom also on account of whom also he made the worlds who being the brightness of his glory the express image of his person and so on and so forth. You see there in the the Son was the fullness of of God's revelation. 
But through the prophets it was only in parts. You know, when the spirit gifts were given to the ecclesia, we find that that likewise was given in many parts. In um, in the first of Corinthians 13 verses 9 and 10, we read, For we know in part, as the Greek says, we know out of parts, and we prophesy out of parts. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in parts shall be done away. And the spirit gifts were manifested then in parts. One person would be able to prophesy, another would be able to heal, heal the sick, another would be able to speak in tongues, all in many parts. But that was not so with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because in the Lord Jesus Christ, to the Lord Jesus Christ, God gave not the Spirit by measure. It wasn't in parts. Christ had the full manifestation. Well, Christ was the full manifestation of the Father in word, in works and in character. In the epistle to the Colossians, this point is made clear that it is in the Lord Jesus Christ that we have the fullness of these things. Colossians 1 and verse 19 For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness dwell. Chapter 2 verse 3 In whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 9 For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So you see, as long as those disciples just clung to John, they were only clinging to a little part because John was, had one particular work to perform. It was only a part of the revelation of God. His work was just to prepare people to accept the fullness of divine revelation in Christ when he would come. And so those disciples <coughs> must leave him and must take hold of him who was the fullness of that manifestation. And verse 35 says, For the Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. The very statement of his baptism. This is my Son the Beloved. Emphasises that fact that the Father loveth the Son and he hath given all things into his hand. Now back in verses 15 and 16, we read that that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth into him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the Father loveth the Son but he also loveth those who believe into him. So he doesn't only love the Son but he loves those who love his Son also. And again it's a little indication to John's disciples that if they are to to come within the bounds of the Father's love then they must identify with God's Son and to do that they must now leave John and they must go and join the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the Father loveth the Son and has given all things into his hand. You know Genesis 1.28 says that, that to Adam, uh, have dominion over, over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and, and the beast of the field and so forth. Hebrews 2 verse 9 tells us that we don't yet see all things put under him. But we do see Christ elevated to the right hand of the Father in readiness to uh, receive the dominion over all things in the future time. Hebrews chapter 2, the end of verse 8, but now we see not yet all things put under him, that's under man, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. And so although we don't see Genesis 1.28 fulfilled at this day, we do see the Lord Jesus Christ elevated to to a position of honour and glory at the right hand of the Father in the heavens in readiness for the time 
but he will be sent back to this earth and all things will be given into his hand and he will then have that dominion and he will share that dominion with those who believe into him. As verse 36 says, He that believeth into the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. He that believeth into the Son. Once again we see that belief that draws a person toward Christ, draws him ever closer and develops in him the likeness of that one to whom he is being drawn. He that believeth in that way hath everlasting life. He doesn't have it now. He doesn't have it now any more than than Christ has all things under his feet at this time. Christ hasn't yet received all those things yet, but he will when he returns in the future. And when he returns in the future, then everlasting life will be bestowed upon those that believe into him. They only have it now as a hope, as a prospect for the future. And so he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life in that sense. But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. He that believeth not the Son. It's the word apithia. It means one who refuses to allow himself to be persuaded. It's translated in in many places, do not obey or disobey. It's also translated unbelief. 